This is a message about growing up, which in the physical realm is natural, but in the spiritual world actually takes conscious cooperation with God. It's all by God's grace. If anybody grows up in Christ, it is by the grace of Christ, but we have to heed the instructions that we are given in order to grow up, and growing up's a tricky thing because people who make a big deal about being grown up hardly ever are. Have you noticed? <laughs> who says, I'm grown and I can do it? Little children. I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can't do it, please help. I annoyed my father in, in thinking about this and reading this passage. I remember pushing my father to the point of exasperation when I was a little kid because I would ask him something, he would give me the answer, and I would reply, I know. <laughs> and after I did that about 80 times, he sat me down and gave me a talking to about what I actually don't know and how annoying and prideful it seemed to be that I would ask him about things I clearly knew nothing about, and as soon as he gave me the answer, a smug, I know, that's hard to take from anybody, especially from a four-year-old. <laughs> so we're talking about growing up. That's what John has in mind in John chapter, in 1 John, rather, chapter 1, verse 5. John has given us the astoundingly awe-inspiring news that God is such that He can be described, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is light. And I told you last week that especially refers to God's absolute holiness, His perfect justice, His righteousness, His moral purity. God is such that there is no shadow in Him. There is no shadow side to the character of God, unlike any one of us. There's no dark side to God. There's no downside to knowing Him. He is pure and good all the way through. God is light. And the only way that we can have harmony and love and fellowship and peace with a God like that is through His forgiveness. We've reached 1 John chapter 2 now, and look with me in verse 12. Having told them how they can be in a fatherly, loving relationship with this pure and holy God, now... John begins to address this amazing fact that Christians, those who have entrusted their lives to Jesus, people who have come to Jesus for their forgiveness, he announces we are in, collectively, all of us who are following Christ, we are in God's family. And there's really the, the Bible story in two sentences, God is light, but because God is also love, we are in His family. And he begins to talk to his readers about various spiritual stages that they find themselves in. And, well, just read it with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. 
I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. How many different categories of people do you count in the verses that I just read to you? There's three distinct groups, right? There's children, and then there's fathers, and there's also young men. John is not referring to the physical age of his readers. He's referring to their spiritual maturity. The first group he addresses is this one, little children which is his favorite way to refer to any Christian. And John, remember at this point, is very, very elderly. John is eye-poppingly old for the ancient world, especially where life expectancy was so low. He wrote this some 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. John is a very old man, and he's reached the age where he can call everybody a child, and it actually kind of works. He's just that much older than everybody else. But the once angry apostle who, along with his brother, wanted to call down fire on people who rejected Jesus, has walked with Jesus for so long that he's become a very tender-hearted and loving and patient and kind, open-hearted man. And he calls Christians little children. And what John is emphasizing here in verse 12 is we are in God's family because he forgave us our sins, and don't miss this, for his own sake. Don't miss this. Verse 12 has a little treasure for you. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. What's it say there? For His name's sake. That's very important, and it's not an isolated biblical idea. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Read this with me, please. This is 700 years before the birth of Jesus, but Isaiah is referring to the forgiving character of God. Read this with me. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does God blot out transgression? Why does God forgive sin? For His own sake. This is also embedded in the most well-known psalm. Psalm 23 says this. Read it with me. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Did you ever notice that? People can know Psalm 23 by heart and miss that phrase. He leads me in paths of righteousness. This God who is light, who is perfectly righteous himself, will lead me down a path of righteousness, and the reason he will do it is for his own sake, for his name's sake, because his character, his name is on the line. Say, I don't really get it. God forgives you because he's good and loving, not because you deserve it. Let me say that again because it's massively important. The forgiveness of your sins, God's loving, fatherly welcome into His family so that He calls you not merely someone He knows and once forgave a great debt, but a forgiven sinner who God has not only forgiven and blotted out your transgressions, but welcomed you into His family as His own beloved son and daughter, to whom God has given His own name. He forgives you because He's good, not because you're good enough to merit His forgiveness. You need His forgiveness 
But your forgiveness does not even depend upon your need of it. Because we all go through the day, we all go through the year, sometimes not doing for others what we could do, even though they need it. We can't do it. They need it, but they don't deserve it. Helping them in the way they want us to help them would actually, in some cases, do more harm than good. God forgives you for His own sake, because of His faithfulness, because of His love, because of His mercy. Your forgiveness depends not on who you are, but on who He is. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if God has staked His character, His reputation, if God has given His name Standing behind his work and his word, he is not going to fail to do what he promised to do. That's why we're in God's family, and I'll show you later in this epistle, John will come alongside sensitive Christians who are chronically worried that they're not saved, and he's going to reassure them and tell them if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. He's bigger than your sensitivity. He's bigger than your introspection. He's bigger than your self-condemnation. We are in God's family because He is good, not because we are. If you've ever, ever, and I have, acted in such a way, had such thoughts, behaved in such a manner that you've wondered whether God can forgive you that time, anybody ever done that? You ever worry that maybe God's tired of hearing it and says, what, you again? That's how we talk to our kids, right? How many times have I told you? I told you this would happen. You know, the old, if you fall out of that attic and break your neck, don't come running to me. Well, Mom, if I break my neck, I don't think I'm going to be running to anyone. <laughs> we measure our Heavenly Father by our capacity to be good earthly fathers and mothers, and He's so much better than that. He forgives us for His namesake. That's why the God who is light is also our Father. And let me quickly say, and I hope for those of you who Father gives a lot of bad images and bad memories, please remember He's the Father you wanted. He's the Father you dreamed of. He's the Father you prayed for and maybe never had on this earth. He's perfect. In this case, in God's case alone, the word Father should conjure up no negative images at all. He's light. There is no darkness in Him at all. John goes on to speak of a different group, and he calls them young men. Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He speaks to the young men again in verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are what? Strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. These young men seem to be a second stage in spiritual development. The young men are those who have spiritual victories as God's Word makes Himself at home in their lives. Verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God, what's it say? Abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The young men have walked with the Father longer. The young men know the Father better. They've heard His Word for a longer period of time, and they've been more open, more receptive, and more understanding of it, perhaps, than the little children have, and they now have spiritual strength. 
The third and final spiritual category that John mentions, number three, are fathers. And you'll notice that of fathers, it says the same thing twice. Verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Bible reading tip, do you think John's a bad writer? You think he forgot what he said in verse 13 and clumsily repeated it unnecessarily in the 14th verse? No. Number one Bible reading tip around here is? Slow down. Notice things. He talks actually more about the young men than he does about the fathers. And obviously, a father is a third and final stage of maturity compared to the young man that's just beginning to feel his strength and win some battles. Why does he say simply, you know him who is from the beginning, verse 13, you know him who is from the beginning, verse 14. He says it twice. And he who is from the beginning is God himself. God and his son, Jesus Christ, who are there from the beginning, as John has told us. Why is that all he said about them? Because the key to spiritual maturity is knowing God more. God knows you perfectly. By the way, how does that make you feel? The fact that God knows everything about you should make you feel awe at the same time that it makes you feel loved. There's nothing you can hide from Him. All of your rotten motives, all of your self-serving, all of your self-seeking, all of your spiritual immaturity is spread out in front of Him like a tablecloth. He can see all of it. But He loves you. He calls you His own child. He wants His Word to abide in you so that you can begin to experience spiritual victory and overcome the evil one, so that you can have real spiritual strength. Of the fathers, those who have known God for a long time, who have become much like Him, John simply says twice, you know Him who is from the beginning. You know God. And the point, I think, is this. The more we know the Father, the more we become like Him. And listen, I said, mark the words, I didn't say no things about him, I said no him. Because you can know a lot of things about someone without knowing them personally. That's called a celebrity. There are people called fans who collect as many facts as they can of the person they would like to know but never will actually meet. God is not a celebrity. His favorite way of explaining self to you is God is your Father who knows you, who loves you, who saw your need, and for His own sake, staking out His own reputation, sent His Son in pursuit of you to bring you into His family, to take you from a rebellious, ignorant sinner who did not know God, did not account for God, didn't think about God. You were living life on your own terms and loving it until you didn't. And whether you were having the time of your life away from God or in the pigsty at the depths of life without God, God loved you in every season, in every condition. And the thing that makes the difference of spiritual maturity is not merely collecting information about God, but knowing Him personally. That's what the fathers have that the children and the young men are still developing. Look in verse 15. Now it takes a turn. 
John has been explaining in the verses I've just read to you that we are, we Christians, we disciples of Jesus, not because we're smarter or better, but because God is so loving and faithful, we are in God's family. And now it's going to take a turn, and he's going to say simply this, since we are in God's family, we should act like it. If you're in God's family, you should act like it. And every family has those expectations. Every family has the family rules. Even in very chaotic families where the kids do everything and anything they want, that's the family rule. And I've been in a few homes like that, some of them in my extended family, and I just marvel at the chaos. Kids eat what they want, go to bed when they want, say anything they want, do anything they want, leave the car however they like in the driveway, leave the, garage, leave the bike in the driveway so that the next kid with the car can come over and run over the bike that's in the driveway, just anarchy. And those are the family expectations, that you do whatever you please and leave me alone. It may not surprise you that your heavenly Father, who has literally gone to enormous expense, expense to Himself to bring you into His family, who loves you perfectly and without conditions, not because you're good and because you deserve it, but because He's good and you need it, He has expectations of how you're going to live now that you're in the family. Would you like to hear one of the things that the Apostle John tells us is expected of people in God's family? This is important because this letter has only, according to those who have counted in Greek grammar, has only 10 imperatives. In other words, 10 commandments, 10 things where John says, and this is what you are to do. Ten's not a lot, especially when you compare it to any other epistle, which routinely has dozens of commandments. In other words, life in God's family is not complicated. John's keeping it simple. He's talking to people, apparently, who have just come to Christ, and he's talking in his very old age after decades of following Jesus, and like grandfathers sometimes can, he can keep it really simple. And make life in the family understandable and attractive. And what he says is this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's it. That's the instruction. The rest of the paragraph is an explanation of why you should do what he says. The rest of the paragraph is an explanation telling you why that makes so much sense, why that will be so good for you, all the benefits you will receive if you heed this simple instruction. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, let me ask you, is that an easy thing to do? Not at all. And someone will say, wait a second. Doesn't it say somewhere else that God loved the world? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So God can love the world, but we can't? Read slowly, ask questions. John uses the word world kind of like we do. It can mean several different things. It can mean the world around us. It can mean nature. We live in a particularly privileged part of the world. 
because you can snow ski and surf in one day in this crazy place. And if you really, really want to, you can sleep in the desert after you've skied and surfed. Very, very few places like it, and they charge us to live here because it's so unique. That's not how John means the world. He obviously doesn't mean the world of people either. When John says in John 3.16, God so loved the world, he's referring to humanity, which we're commanded to do. We're told to love God supremely, love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor, what's it say? As ourselves. What does John mean by world? World in this sense, which is all over the Bible, the world here means the attitudes the values, and the decisions we follow without obeying or caring about God. Every attitude you develop, every value you hold, even if you're not aware of it, and every decision you make with no regard to God, without taking His Word and His character into account, that is the world system. You can think of it as the world, in John's language here, is the system that rejects God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he means by the world. The system that rejects God and His Son, Jesus. Now, here in 2024, in the most technologically advanced and prosperous society in human history, let me ask you, how do you think the world system is going? Do you like what it produces? Do you realize we have nearly a mass shooting per day in this country? You always have to dig into the definitions to know exactly what is meant by that. But a week ago, on Sunday, there was a shooting in a church, and there was a mass shooting at a sports celebration. That's just one instance. The technology that it was meant to bring us close together, help us connect with friends and family around the world, instead seems to have isolated us in tiny lonely islands, even under the roof of our own home. So the dad's doing his thing, mom's doing hers, kids each have their phone or their own device. If you grew up with Wi-Fi, you literally can't imagine the world that existed before everybody was online all the time. It's been fundamentally different. It will not ever change. And what it has exposed, as technology always does, is that people can take the greatest scientific advancements in their lifetime and turn them to evil. So that something that was meant for social connection for junior high girls often means bullying. Young girls specifically in the United States have much higher rates of depression, anxiety, and self-harm since smartphones became an irreplaceable part of our world. Now, why am I talking about smartphones? I'm just telling you it's one expression of how the system, the culture, the values, the decisions, the commitments, the styles, the vibes that reject God and His Son ruin and destroy everything and everyone. And John says, the world that opposes your Savior, the world that hates God and the family He's forming, very simple, don't love it. 
Don't give your heart to it. And this passage probably sounds extremely old-fashioned to you. Have I got there yet? See, when I was a kid, I had this verse pounded into my head, and what the preachers of that generation usually meant is, just don't be trendy. If it's new, have nothing to do with it. So, I was a seven-year-old in a bow tie. Okay? That was how we guarded against worldliness. Can I tell you something? Didn't work. Let me be clear about what I'm talking about. I'm talking about attitudes, values, decisions, commitments. I'm setting, I'm talking about what John is talking about, where you set your heart, where your hope comes from, what things delight you in life. All of that external stuff that was such a part of my childhood and when I arrived at this church so deeply woven into the culture of our church, that's indifferent at best. It can actually be toxic because it tells you if you keep in step with the fashion and the culture of a previous age, that means that the world has had no effect on you and it's not true. I don't know if I should tell this story, but you're the 8 a.m. service, and you're the service I try things out on. <laughs> if this is ineffective, the 9.30 and the 11 service will be spared this story I'm about to tell you. It's probably my second or third Sunday here, and that's been close to 20 years ago. I was right over there on that side of the auditorium, and a beloved friend and staff member who's still on our staff, who I will not name, said, hey, go say hi to that guy. Well, I'm the new pastor. I should. He's a very elderly man. I said, sir, I'm Bruce Garner. Nice to meet you. He looked at me and said, you forgot your necktie. <laughs> I was wearing dress pants, wingtip shoes, and a sport coat. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I left it at home. He said, have you no fear of God? I know. I wasn't expecting that either. It escalated really, really quickly. <laughs> and I said, because they're singing the last verse of the last hymn by this point, I said, sir, I'm, I'm sorry my personal appearance has offended you. I hope it's not a distraction. I hope we can all benefit from the message I'm about to share. Walked off. He glared at me through the whole sermon. It's different to be a preacher because sometimes people hate you and, and let you know it th through their <laughs> facial expressions and it's not very proper to say, hey, chill out or go sit in the back because you're creeping me out with the, hate, with the hateful looks. You can't do that. You can't, okay? Believe me, I've wanted to, but uh, you can't. So I, you know, that's, that's how it is when a church changes anything. Sometimes there's waves of, of discontent. I understood that. But the next day, a woman his age, one of the godly saints of this church, called and said, Bruce, I am so sorry. I heard and saw what he said to you, and I'm so sorry. I brought him to church. I'm so sorry. <laughs> said, listen, all are welcome. All need help. And, and he said, you know, the thing is, that little lady he's with, that's not even his wife. <laughs> so here's the point. This man was living wrong before God and tearing into me 
about a necktie. The world's values did not consist, Jesus insists on this, on external appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And I'm not telling you in this story that I'm the hero. I'm telling you the story only for you to understand the gravity, the importance of what John is saying and for you to put the emphasis in the right place. Keeping in step with the trends of years ago is no guarantee of godliness. It can actually be a cloak for worldliness. What John says is, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does the world do? For all generations, at all times, so long as we are under the influence of the world, here's what the world does. It makes sin look good and loving God look silly. That's what it comes down to. And sometimes actually loving God will look like you're so far behind the times you're a dinosaur. Other times actually loving God will make you look like you're so far ahead of the times you're a revolutionary. It was the preaching of the gospel and the ethics that come with following Jesus that eventually destroyed slavery. That was people far ahead of the time on any number of other issues, including especially issues of human identity and sexuality, we are going to be told that we're on the wrong side of history, that we're dinosaurs. In all of its guises, in all of its offers, the world will always make sin look good and loving God looks silly, stupid, unnecessary, old-fashioned. The only thing you dare to do for the good of your own soul and the good of the people around you is to keep loving God and supremely and your neighbor like yourself. That's what godliness really looks like. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why we should not love the world first, loving the world kills off your love for your father. Don't miss verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. What that means, church, is this. No matter what anyone tells you, you can't love both. You can't love this world, its systems, and its values, and love your father at the same time. And we try. And Hear me saying we, what I'm really actually saying is I, this Christian right here. I've tried all my life, same as you, to have it both ways, to consider love and obedience to my father as sort of a cafeteria deal where I can choose what I want, leave the rest behind. And you can't. Wherever you set your affection, wherever you set your hope, wherever you put your fondest dreams, wherever you derive your greatest enjoyment, that's your real God. That's your real center. And you can't do both at once. The Bible says so everywhere. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. How's that for a starter? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Read the last sentence with me. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You throw in with the world, you've declared war against your father. 
If that language sounds too strong, listen to what John actually wrote. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You don't actually have God's love in your heart. And it's evident you don't have love in your heart for God. Talk is cheap. Creeds are easy. John says, where your heart is, where your affections are, tell the real story. Whether you are really in the family and a friend of God, or you've actually declared war against him, as James said. Number two, John goes on to say that what the world offers does not come from your father. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and, the pri and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Three categories, and here's, here's the heaviest part of the sermon. You ready? Here's the danger of preaching and listening to preaching. Because I've done it many times, both as a preacher and a listener. Because it may not surprise you to know I've heard many more sermons than I'll ever preach. Okay? I've sat in the pew far more often than I've stood in the pulpit. Here's the danger of preaching. Here's how God's Word explained and taught gets wasted. The preacher says, and the people say, ooh, that's good, and make no plans to change. It just becomes a slogan. It's a little bumper sticker, something to remember but nothing to apply. These next few verses invite you into a journey with your father's help, not of self-discovery, but of your father showing you what's really going on in your heart. Let me read it to you again. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. If you will take those three phrases... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, and examine your own heart, it will tell you exactly at what point you have replaced your father's love with love for the world. What do those phrases mean? Let me walk you through them very quickly. The desires of the flesh invite you to do things without God. It's what the body craves. It's an invitation to indulge physical pleasure, which God is not opposed to. God created bodies and God created physical pleasure, but it, it invites you to enjoy the pleasures of the body with no regard to what your father said about it. What are the desires of the eyes? Having things without God. Possessions. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. What is the pride of life? And another earlier translation said something like possessions and pride in them. The pride of life invites you to be or become without God and invites you to achievement and to achieve your own identity apart from God. Now, that's a very, very powerful invitation. It invites you to pleasure it invites you to possession, and it invites you to achievement and the identity you get out of that achievement. We were made for pleasure. 
Every joy, every pleasure you've ever had in your life was intended as a gift from your Father. What we do with the pleasures that God has is enjoy them the wrong way at the wrong time or in the wrong proportion, making the pleasure more important than anything else. He's not opposed to the pleasure. God is not opposed to you having things either. Your Father's generous. The Bible says elsewhere that God, who has not held back His own Son, will also give us with Him everything to enjoy. What about identity and achievement? You think God is opposed to you having an identity? Not at all. He gave you one. You're His child. You're His beloved son or daughter. He invites you to do great things in His name, to serve Him mightily, and to make your mark not only on this earth but in eternity through the things you do in His service. That's why it's so slippery. I hope I'm not losing you in the abstraction. Let me see if I can make it plainer. Things that your body craves, things that your eyes tell you are good and desirable for you, and achievements that you deeply, deeply hunger for, and the identity you think you will derive from it will call to you every day of your life. And if you leave God out of that picture, you will waste your life. You will give your life to worldly pleasures that will be snatched away from you. You will give your life to possessions that will one day be taken from you as well. And you will derive an identity and a long list of achievements that have nothing to do with God that signify only that your life has been thrown away. That yes, you are going to glory and you are God's beloved child, but the life he gave you from the moment you met Christ that was meant to make an impact on the world of people who need him instead resulted in you being a poor copy of people who still don't know Christ, who live as they do, and are of no good to God or anyone else. So you want to make this really practical. Take a minute and think about what your flesh wants what your eyes desire, and what kind of achievements you're chasing, and go with those things honestly before God and ask your Heavenly Father to walk through those three piles to see what actually comes from Him. You may be surprised what He tells you. You may be surprised what entertainments you need to get rid of. You may be embarrassed, as I have been, at how much your identity is wrapped up in what other people may think of you, how much money you may earn, what kind of car you may drive. If I can stay here for one more minute, do you understand how much coastal Orange County has perfected the lure of the world? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's Orange County. That's our whole thing. We say literally to the world, I've seen the name of Huntington Beach, California, literally worldwide through fashion. People who have no idea where it is wear it proudly on their shirts because it just seems like the coolest place ever. And the invitation is, come here, be cool, enjoy, achieve, see that? Go get that. Be that person. Have followers, have influence, have esteem, have people tell you how good you are. And your father stands at a distance, graving over what you're doing with the life he gave you. 
Here's the third and final reason. John says that we don't want to love the world, number three, because what the world offers does not last. The world is passing away along with its desires. That's an artful way of saying it's already over. Jesus has already come. He already rose from the grave. How this is going to end is not in doubt. The world and its systems will be someday torn down by King Jesus. And what the world offers you not only will never satisfy you, it won't even last. The world destroys people, but John goes on to say, people who obey God live forever. 1 John chapter 2 verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides, what? Forever. There's the difference between fragility and frivolity that blow away in the wind of death or a life that begins with Jesus the moment you trust Him and become part of God's family and lives forever. What's John telling us? Simply this, because of who you are, Christian, be very careful who you love. The world is calling out for your heart and your affection. Do not give it to them. Give your heart instead to your Father, and you will be safe, and your life will live forever. Let's pray together. Christian, can I just give you a minute to examine? Think about those three categories. What the body craves, what the eyes desire, and the pride of life. If you've identified something God brought something to mind while I went through those categories that is not pleasing to God. Tell Him about it right now. Be done with it. If you've loved the world more than you've loved your Father, tell Him so. He knows it already. There's no shame. He loves you. He gave you life for His own sake. But don't live contrary to him. Don't ignore him any longer. Don't tell him that you know better. If you don't know Jesus, the world will never satisfy you. Even the pleasure that you're feeling now, it's just temporary, friend. It's very, very real, and it can be very, very intoxicating, but it won't last much longer. Many, many people here can tell you on the other side of meeting Christ that the life they gave away to the world, it was all a lie. It was all deceit. It didn't satisfy them. It only stung them. It only left them feeling empty. Only your Father who made life can give you eternal life. If you don't know Jesus, this is my personal invitation to you to turn away from your sin and whatever you've been placing in front of Him and come to Him. Lord Jesus, thank you very much for your great love for us. Help us to love you and not the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.